This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 193 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In today's show, Jason is talking to Cahal Garvey, geneticist and biohacker. Well, Cahal, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the show. I'm really excited to have you here. I've uh, read about you a couple times, and I think first was in an article in the New York, New York Times, calling, calling you something like the Pied Piper of the, uh, of the biohacking movement. Oh dear, I, I don't remember them calling me a Pied Piper. That has a that has terrible <laughs> connotations. Yeah, um, a lot of people seem to have first heard of me from that article, and I was kind of you know pleasantly surprised by it because it was originally supposed to be a much broader feature, and I was kind of I think more of a footnote. And then when it got cut down to size or something, they decided to spend a lot more of that time focusing on what I did. So I, I kind of accidentally got huge press. You know, it's kind of good good for me. Yeah, that so. that is. That is good. And um, yeah, maybe they didn't say Pied Piper. Maybe that was just how I remembered it. But um, that's why I, uh, I was so excited to be able to get you on the show because I thought you'd be the ideal person to have on for us. Um, recently, I've become really fascinated with uh, the whole synthetic biology uh, movement or subject. And uh, having, having read a couple of articles about Craig Venter and what he's been doing down at Synthetic Genomics. And, uh, but we're kind of a bootstrap tech show so it's 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 also cool to see it from the perspective of the individual hacker people being able to actually engineer things on their own so um i'm hoping what we can do is talk a little bit about uh what's or, or maybe start this way it, about what synthetic uh biology is and then um and how it's been progressing and then maybe get into the biohacking sort of spin on on it yeah absolutely so what? So for our, for our listeners, you know, just please outline for us what is synthetic biology and what's been the recent history. Um, all right. So synthetic biology is uh, a great big hype term. Um, basically, there's a there's been this you know attempt to rebrand modern techniques in genetic engineering as synthetic biology, and there is a there's really only one distinction that you can make between genetic engineering that we've been doing for 25 odd years or so now and synthetic biology. And that is that rather than using um, DNA that has been derived somewhere back along the line from a wild organism that you've actually taken the DNA from this organism, uh, changed it, edited it, snipped it around and, you know, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste uh, until it ends up where you want it to be. With synthetic biology, you design the DNA that you want from scratch, uh, on a computer, and then you get it synthesized, hence the name, synthetic biology. So the DNA is very much designed um, as an engineering task. Uh, it's more of, a, more of a, a, an engineering system than, a, than a, an art or a process. So um, synthetic biology is a, it's genetic engineering, but with a lot more control and a lot more, um, it's a lot more predictable, we hope, because along the way, we don't have to kind of guess where the things will work according to plan. We can design them very specifically to order for the purpose. So um, in a nutshell, that's what synthetic biology really is. 
what it represents is something a lot broader because as it calls for engineering rather than art, um, synthetic biology gets people excited about the possibilities for the next step of genetic engineering, the sort of things that we can now do now that we can start from scratch and build DNA to order to do very complicated tasks, to do very sophisticated tasks. Uh, Craig Venter made headlines because he synthesized, well, his team synthesized uh, an entire bacterial genome and had it work. But they didn't actually change much of anything. They changed a few things to prove that they were working with the synthetic DNA, but they didn't really change anything significant. Uh, the reason being, of course, that they wanted, they wanted to know it would almost certainly work, no questions, you know. Um, so they were being very uh, conservative at first to make sure that this experiment works and they know it works. Grand. The next step is what gets people excited. And Craig Venter's team have famously said they're going to uh, replace oil with some fabulous uh, bacteria that just spits out oil when you feed it uh, waste food, waste stock. Um, I'm kind of more interested in the indie end of things where people are less ambitious, but where there are such low hanging, there are so many low hanging fruits just waiting to be picked in synthetic biology, in genetic engineering. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of hoping that indie people get to do that first and, uh, you know, Swipe, swipe the possibility of patenting the ground floor away early on. So that, that's what synthetic biology is and what it means to me as a person. Right. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how realistic is it that amateurs would be able to do anything with synthetic biology? I mean, is it, is it something where we're still five to ten years off before the non-professionals could do something that's of any significance other than, hey, look, I just did this one small tweak to this one small gene um, that I read off of a website, or is there, are there things that can be done um, from, you know, say, within your garage, your home? Well, uh, personally, I, I don't know if I'm the exact uh, person to act as an example, because I do have a degree in genetics, but using equipment that is accessible at home and insisting on using chemistry that is accessible at home uh, and techniques that are easily done by a person with as little equipment as possible. Um, I have been able to show, yeah, you can design DNA in a computer, order it over the internet and get it into a bacterium at home. Um, and that's something that I, I can write up very easily as a tutorial. It could be a few days worth of uh, experimenting once the DNA arrives in the post. So the only barrier really is reliably designing DNA that works. And that is something that I think is, uh, they're calling this a de-skilling process because people are designing very intelligent software, which is taking away the difficulty of designing DNA that works and does what you want it to. Right. I mean, which is kind of how the whole technology world has moved anyway. I mean, you know, writing computer code, writing programs back in the 70s, you know, with punch cards and then assembly language yeah. and then C. And now, you know, you could teach kids who are 10 or 12 years old how to write a web app practically um, or, or something. So well, we, just... we, we do, in fact. There's a movement in, uh, in our, started in Ireland in my very city called Coder Dojo, and it's getting huge press because it's teaching kids uh, from six upwards how to code, and they're surprisingly good at it, you know? I mean, when you get beyond a critical level of abstraction from binary, it becomes very simple for people to learn this new language. And it's a very logical language, uh, with computers at least. Biology may be less logical, but the, the parallel is very, very close because nobody programs in binary. And at the moment, we are trying to program in the, the, the biological equivalent of binary, in the four letters of DNA. But very quickly, we're, we're, we're moving away from that. We're moving up through the layers of abstraction. So, and I don't think it'll take 
that long. I don't think it'll take as long as computers did because everything accelerates. You know, uh, we, we are on an accelerating curve of technological development. And there are already very clever tools that can allow you to adapt existing code in, the, in you know, uh, uh, in, in, by which I mean wild DNA. You, you go online and you look up a feature that some organism has and you find the DNA that codes for that feature. So that's uh, the code base. And there are tools that can allow you to adapt code from one species to another. Um, the next step is designing code that will allow you to more or less invent an idea and interpret that into DNA. And uh, you know, that, that, that is a lot more challenging. But in the meantime, we're going to get a lot better at converting and swapping and, you know, hacking DNA from one purpose into another. And uh, I don't think that'll take more than one or two years before we see the first kind of people without a degree getting involved. At the moment, it's just a matter of cost. Yeah, it's, yeah to me, it, it, it almost seems like it's equivalent to, say, being building an iPhone app, right? I mean, you don't have to have a master's in computer science to build an iPhone app. I mean, you know, yeah, it's always nice to understand machine architecture and programming languages and data structures, but when it comes to an iPhone app, you need to learn the basic uh, ways of expressing yourself using Objective-C or something or, or you know, Java if you're doing Android. But, you know, you could take a, a young person or, or, or rather a not an, an, a, someone who isn't uh, – um, educated in computer science and, and have them in a you know, few weeks or maybe a couple months build a, a simple iPhone app. And do you think, it's, do you think there's a similar level of uh, complexity to, say, to the synthetic um, biology stuff? Or is that like an order of magnitude harder? I mean, how, what, what was the comparison and difficulty for, in, in your mind? That's very hard to say because um, at the moment we can't just invent new programs as it were in life because uh every dna sequence that codes for a job either codes for you know rna which is somewhat predictable um and acts on other rna for the most part or gets interpreted into a protein but mostly you're talking about proteins and every dna you know we'll say just it used to be thought that every gene coded for a protein that's now known not to be true but the paradigm is still that you get a chunk of dna and you program you you change that until it works in the species you want. But in the end of the day, it always codes for the same protein. And it's the proteins that do the job. Now, the job is what determines how complex that is. The, the Hello World programmer, if you like, the, the program that everyone starts out with in a different pro every different programming language, um, the Hello World program of life is GFP, green fluorescent protein. And it's this wonderfully convenient little protein that was originally found in a, a, a jellyfish uh, called Aquaria Victoria. And... GFP just is green and fluorescent. Now, that's as simple as it gets, because if you can get the protein to get made, if you can get the program to run, if you like, it just happens. And it's, it's really simple. And you can stick that program onto other programs to check if they're working, because if it glows, then the other proteins are getting made. Fine. But they're unlike programs, which kind of start at the ground floor, they start really simple. And from there, you're working up towards different layers of difficulty. Um, in, when you're talking about life, you might want to do one thing and it's completely trivial. And you might want to do another thing and find that it is extremely complicated. And that's just because suddenly maybe the next thing you want to do isn't actually a, pro, a protein. It's uh, some sort of secondary metabolite. It's some sort of thing that's down a chain of metabolics uh, far away from your normal organism. Now you need like 15 proteins to make the thing that does the job. So uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but some things may be really easy and other things which intuitively would seem to be not that different might actually be very difficult to get working. So that's where the complexity gets into this. Uh, it, biology is nonlinear. Biology is, 
it works to a certain extent logically, but you know, it's really parallel. Like all the decisions get made at once in life. So sometimes everything's really straightforward. Sometimes you really do have to know how the DNA itself works in order to, you know, wrangle it into form and make something wonderful happen. So I, I wouldn't say that it's exactly comparable, no. Okay, so, okay, that, that, that makes complete sense. So there's, there's sort of a, a reverse engineering. It's like you're taking a working program and you're trying to figure out how to tweak it to make it to do something else as opposed to starting from scratch. Well, yeah, I mean, like, working backwards here from the, the biggest code base of ever invented, which is nature itself, um, you've got, I mean, mili- billions of different programs out there, more, maybe trillions, uh, of programs, discrete bits of DNA from everything in nature. And none of it's commented. None of it was written by an intelligent actor. I mean, it's all just evolved. So it, it, it is the ultimate hack. It just happens because if it didn't happen, it wouldn't survive. Um, and you're trying to back reverse engineer that into a form that you can engineer further forward with, that you can take forward to a, a more advanced program. And you see all of these. Uh, it's really wonderful working with DNA because you encounter these hacks and you have to learn how they work. Um, but it means that everything's not consistent if you work from the basic code base. Uh, you can have some programs that follow a very um, logical flow where if this, then this. So if this protein is present, then it will activate this other gene, which creates another protein. Fine. That's a very common way of things working in nature. But you may end up with another thing where um, you've got uh, the, the cell has, crea- has sort of evolved so that this particular gene is very likely to get mutated one way or the other. And that's kind of like a toggle that it may mutate to become active in the next cell. So the next cell when the cell divides, that one of the next cells has this mutant, which the protein works. And then in the next cell after that, oh, look, it mutated back and it's turned off. And sometimes that's actually quite deliberate. A gene is designed to be very unstable because it allows them to sort of toggle on and off uh, an intermittent program that may be desirable sometimes and not others. So that's a hack. And we may not initially understand that that's how this works. It, it may take many years for someone to study this protein and figure out how it works. So it's a huge code base, vastly uh, bigger than anything we've ever programmed. If you gathered all the code ev- anyone's ever written for a computer, it's pittance towards what nature has. And we have to understand how it works by black boxing it, by you know taking it out of the organism and tweaking it and playing around with it until it doesn't work and then figuring out why and figuring out how we can make it work better, largely by trial and error. And only when someone does all that hard work in a science lab somewhere, can we take that into an engineering lab and work forward with it as a component of a more complicated program. So, yeah, it's, a, it's real hacking. Um, and that's part of what makes it so exciting at the moment, but it's also part of the challenge towards making it really easy to just get involved as a seven-year-old learning how to biohack. You know, it, it, it's kind of funny. These analogies, I think, are, are really helpful because, you know, you said in a DNA sequence, the, the percentage of the actual nucleotides, the, the base pairs that code for genes that aren't just, you know, a cruft. I mean, that's really, uh, uh, it's like, what, 3% or 2% of the, of the human DNA is act- mm. actually encoded for genes? Is that right? <laughs> outdated. It's an outdated figure. Well, yes, coding for genes, yes. But uh, they're used to this idea that the rest of it was just rubbish. And okay. now, thankfully, um, people aren't being taught that anymore. But that's still the public perception. And you'd still find that kind of reference on uh, outdated articles. Uh, we now know that the, the regulatory the regulation of those genes, of those 2 to 3% of DNA that actually code for a protein, the re- a lot of other DNA that doesn't code for proteins goes into regulating that and de- deciding when genes get turned on, when they get turned off, in what context they should form this or that product. So 
there used to be this idea that most of our DNA was junk. We now know that actually, yes, actually a very significant portion of our DNA is what you might call junk, but there's an evolutionary reason why we accept that um, because it's kind of a, it's what you might call hacking space. It's junk that could someday maybe be useful if we play around with it a bit more through, through evolving. <laughs> but a great, a, a huge portion is actually very de- deliberate DNA. That is, it has been selected for, it's there for a reason, and it wasn't initially obvious, but actually, yeah, that, that it's, it's important. If you take it away, you end up with very nasty diseases. So it's bigger than two or two or three percent. There is a, ve- I mean, a huge portion of our DNA is actually what makes people. And the remaining part, you could cut it out and still have a human being with no problems. It's, it's non-essential. But the reason that we keep it around is because it's kind of place-based. It can, ev- it can mutate all it likes without hurting us, but someday it might mutate into something that actually codes for a new useful protein. So that, you see that across the, uh, all the kingdoms of life, there's always a bit of place space left in the DNA. There's always junk DNA that's tolerated because it's not really junk. It's dispensable, but easy to experiment with. So that's why it's there. And we have a lot of that kind of DNA. Wow. Okay. So you have, you have, your, um, you have the sequences that don't, that don't go for genes that are sort of promoters or um, they, they regulate the genes. But then you have the placeholder um, base pairs, right? So there's different kinds. Um, and what what do you have? Is there any estimate on the percentage of of what the regulation uh, base the pace bearers that participate in the regulation versus are just sort of placeholders? Um, I'm sure there's an up to date uh, calculation, but to be honest with you, I haven't been keeping track because it changes so regularly. Every few years, they discover, uh, and and anyone wise in this field has come to accept that the most up to date figures are probably undershooting because every few years they discover a new layer. Uh, regulation or a new way that this DNA helps regulate other DNA, uh, we're still reverse engineering our own DNA. We know through the reference genome what almost every letter of the, uh, the average human being's genome is, but we're still, dis- we're still figuring out what every letter does. Um, it was very easy initially to find all of the genes because genes follow a common pattern. They have, like you said, uh, what's called a promoter, which is kind of the, the stretch of DNA, which has a pattern which tells the cell, under these circumstances, copy this into RNA, and then interpret that RNA into a protein. So it was very easy to find all the protein coding bits of DNA, and we call those genes. Um, it took a while for us to find that there are other bits of DNA, which are a bit more cryptic and harder to find, but they don't directly code for proteins. Instead, that DNA is interpreted into the intermediate form, RNA, but that RNA itself does a job. It's not just a template. It's not just a transcript. It does a job. Um, and that's regulatory RNA. Fine. So that we discovered this whole other layer. And then we found other layers of RNA and still more other layers of RNA. And we found, uh, you know, all these different sort of regulatory sequences that we thought were dead, which behaved like promoters under certain circumstances. And, you know, the layers just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And of course, every layer is more and more subtle. So obviously, you know, you find the genes, that's 90% of the problem. If the genes weren't there, you'd have nothing. Fine. But then the next 5% would have been when they discovered the regulatory RNA, but we're still missing 5%. The next 2% would have been the next layer, the next 1%. You get closer and closer and closer to the, the, the answer of how to make a human being. Um, but until they really figure out how a human being happens and make a human being happen using that program, which I wouldn't ethically support, but you know, until we've right. actually done it, we don't know, do we have the accurate figures? Now, I would say maybe it doesn't go above 50%. I, I, I would guess off the top of my head that we still haven't broken 50% in terms of this much DNA is essential. Um, because large organisms like ourselves, for some reason, are quite comfortable having huge portions of rubbish DNA. So 
the human genome is still probably mostly what you would call rubbish if you didn't appreciate its valuable role in evolution. Right. Now, so when it comes to uh, microbes and, and these and bacteria, you know, these single cell organisms, um, their percentage of junk DNA, or, or rather the, the, the percentage of DNA that, that doesn't directly encode, uh, encode genes are, is much uh, smaller, right? I mean, it's sort of like, um, whereas the, we're, the more complex the organism, it tends to be that we have more of these sort of unknown or placeholder or regulatory um, well, actually, there, there's this uh, wonderful kind of idea. I think, they, I think this is uh, encompassed in what they call the Red Queen hypothesis, um, which is that the reason why we have so, so much redundancy and the reason why, in fact, sex was invented, uh, well, not invented, but evolved. So you, I, it's terrible that you have to avoid using words like invented, but, you know, there you go. Right, right. Um, the, the reason why sex evolved um, was actually because bacteria are so efficient at mutating and changing and evolving. They, I mean, they have a doubling time in some cases of as little as 20 minutes. So every 20 minutes, cells divide. And when you add that up, you're talking about, you know, massive growth rates. Bacteria have very small genomes compared to us. And yeah, they have a lot less junk. They're a lot more efficient. They don't waste as much DNA on play space. But part of that reason is we need a lot of play space because our generation time is so low that we need to be able to have lots and lots of harmless mutations every generation in order to keep up with bacteria who have very little junk to play with. So on average, a mutation is more likely to be a problem for them. But there are so many of them that it just doesn't matter to them. As a species, it doesn't matter if like 90% of the mutations they have end up with dead bacteria because the 10% are better than the last generation. Fine. So bacteria evolve at an enormously faster rate because of their generation time. And because of that, they don't have to have as much uh, play space. <laughs> they can afford to waste a lot of individuals on, on bad mutations. Um, and sex was invented for us as a way of keeping up with that. We have junk so that we can play a lot. And then we have sex so that we can swap over all of the really great stuff that individuals have evolved to come up with new individuals with combinations of great things. Um, whereas bacteria can't easily do that. You know, they have other methods. But uh, the, the difference between our DNA and their DNA, the way we regulate everything, it's really kind of, it's, it's one of the things that's really interesting when you, when you get into genetics. Um, and I always like bacteria because superficially, they seem more logical. They act more like what we might consider a computer program. So right. I like engineering bacteria, and I like to stick with them for now. Yeah, and that's great, because that's what I'd like to talk about next, which is the, uh, I, I think it's referred to as the minimum cell project, which is yeah. trying to find, taking a really small uh, type of bacteria and, and, and attempting to remove all of the unnecessary genes to get the very minimalist uh, uh, DNA that they can, that, or cell that... that possible so that you can use that as sort of a framework. And the way I would sort of, at least from my, as an outsider, my understanding of it is it's almost like the Java virtual machine or, 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 or it's just, it's like a framework. It's like, give us, give us the minimum amount of stuff. And, and then as a biologist or synthetic uh, biologist, or whatever, you could then take that minimal cell and then add in the stuff that you actually want rather than having to constantly be ripping out all of the stuff that you think might interfere or you don't need. And I don't know, please explain that a little bit and, and tell me where I'm wrong on that. Well, you're not wrong except to compare it to the Java virtual machine because it's more like bootstrapping a new kernel. Um, a virtual machine would be something that would interpret the same program no matter what the underlying platform would be. And I actually think that's a more fruitful approach. But the minimal cell is this idea that, yeah, you know, what if we can... Uh, take this extreme reductionist approach and chop bits out until what you've got left is still alive, but that's all you can say about it. I right. actually personally think that that's a little bit 
I think it's a little bit short-sighted because it all depends on your definition of a life and it all depends on what conditions you're willing to accept. Because you could, in theory, come up with an extremely minimal cell in, the, in terms that it can only replicate and it, does, it requires vast amounts of input. So you have to give it all these really complex molecules that you've pre-created. Uh, you have to pre-digest its food for it. And you, pre you have to give it all of its energy molecules. Like you have to feed it ATP because it can't make its own ATP. That's like the universal energy unit of, of most cells on Earth, ATP. You could have a cell which all but uh, is dead. In, right. You have to give it everything to remain alive. And all it does is absorb all of these things, stick them together and replicate. But that's not very useful because in order to do anything useful with that thing, you, you would have to hack back in all of those things. You can't, industri you can't expect a, an industrial microbe to require some nanny to stand next to it, feeding it everything all the time. It, it's right. going to die instantly the minute that something goes wrong. So natural cells are very robust. This reductionist approach would be very informative, but I actually don't think it would make a great engineering platform. Um, an interpretation layer I would find more interesting, which is where you'd have this, you come up with a standard and you build your, your genetic programs to this standard. And then you just spend your time engineering all the cells you might want to use with an interpretation layer that interprets that standard. And that would be both easier, I think, uh, in the short term and the long run, I think it would be easier to work with and easier to design. And it would be a much, a much better engineering platform because say you've got a minimal cell, and you want to get that minimal cell to make uh, penicillin. Fine, you can load in the programs to make penicillin and you'd load in all of the precursor programs that make all the things that that program needs to make penicillin. Say then that you want to get the same cell and get it to make something a bit more complicated. You're starting from the ground level again and you have to insert all of these vast you know, precursor programs, these dependencies, if you want to take the computer uh, uh, analogy. But with an interpretation layer, instead of working with this one cell and trying to make it sing and then trying to make it dance and then trying to make it fly, you could just choose different cells that already nearly do what you want, um, install the interpretation layer and then just get them to complete the final step. So I think that's more productive, but the minimal cell would be, philosophically speaking, very, very informative. I say philosophically because scientifically we already have, you don't need to make a minimal cell to know how cells work and live. Um, it would be informative, but I don't think it's necessary. But philosophically, it would be interesting to have what you would call a minimal cell. Yeah. Well, so where are we in terms of that? I mean, there's a minimal cell project, but is there something akin to what you said, like a virtual machine? Uh, is, there a, is there an effort to create, make something like that happen? Um, do you know what? Surprisingly, there hasn't. And I think one of the reasons is because uh, most people just have one platform that they like, and they kind of see no reason why you should use anything else. <laughs> so... Um, when a platform being like, what, E. coli or some type e. of yeast E. coli, yeast, yeast whatever. I mean, my, my favorite one at the moment is Bacillus subtilis, a common soil bacterium. And most people use E. coli. I like Bacillus subtilis. Uh, so everyone has their own favorite language and everyone has their own favorite bacterium. Um, Interesting. <laughs> making so, an so, uh, uh, are there the same kind of like derisive battles about like, oh, you know, everybody <laughs> uses E. coli as an idiot. It's like you should use. No, thankfully, uh, <laughs> there, there, there isn't that kind of. And everyone basically works with E. coli to begin with. So E. coli is one of the easiest things to work with. And it's the workhorse of, 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 of labs. So everyone still does at some level use E. coli. But uh, it's, it's actually got a lot to do, a lot more to do with what you want to get done. Uh, it's very functional rather than philosophical. So if someone wants to get a protein that's got this property called glycosylation, that basically rules out E. coli uh, because bacteria don't use that system. We do, plants do, fungi do, but 
bacteria don't tend to do a lot of this thing we call glycosylation. And I won't go into what it is, just suffice to say, sometimes it's essential for proteins which are going to be used medically in humans because uh, it prevents our immune system from going nuts and destroying the protein. Um, so that might require that you run your program in something like a yeast or a plant or even a human cell. So you might assemble your gene in E. coli because E. coli is so easy to work with. You might assemble the DNA in E. coli, check if it's correct, and then migrate your code onto another platform like uh, Chinese hamster ovary cells, funnily enough, are uh, one of the main industrial platforms, uh, or plants or fungi or something. So it's very functional. Uh, there, it's, not kind of, it's, it's not just a matter of taste. And for me, my choice of Bacillus subtilis was functional uh, because as, a, as, a, as an indie synthetic biologist, you can easily work with E. coli at home, but um, for people without the same equipment as me, it is probably a little bit easier to work with Bacillus subtilis. Um, and I think that I can get Bacillus subtilis to be even easier to engineer, to get the DNA into, than we've gotten E. coli to, you know, that, than we've made E. coli, which is very easy to begin with. So for me, it was just, I saw, I saw Bacillus subtilis, I looked at the, uh, the lineup of features on either side, and I said, you know, if I'm trying to boot, kick, uh, bootstrap DOI bio, that's probably the way to go. Uh, so that as well was very functional. So um, I think you described yourself as a geneticist. Is that right? Is that your yeah. actual, uh, you're a professional geneticist? And then, yeah, I'm, but I'm you said you're an amateur. Okay, but you're, but you're an amateur synthetic biologist. So you, you, do, you do sort of proper genetics work in a lab somewhere. And then you, when you're on your own, you play around with some of the synthetic biology stuff. Is that, is that right? Um, actually, no, you know, I think I, I think I was misusing the word amateur. Um, I use amateur methods because I think that by doing it myself in the manner that I expect my customers to, I'm proving principle and I'm, I'm much closer to the people that I'm going to be trying and encouraging to be taking up the same hobby. Um, but no, I, this is actually my profession. I'm, uh, I, I am aiming to release DNA platforms that make it easier for people to code. And one of my ultimate goals maybe would be to create an interpretation layer. But that would require a lot of DNA, which means a lot of money and means uh, that, that'll be at some point in the future, not now. But my, my, my aim is professionally to create open source DNA platforms that would allow people to very easily engineer life without the same degree and without the same skill as I have. So I am a professional synthetic biologist, but I use amateur techniques in order to remain close to my target audience. Interesting. Um, well, what, what got you into this in the first place? I mean, was this, this is something you did straight out of uh, your graduate school, or is this some kind of, did this build off of things that you were doing at, at, a, at, a, at a job, or how, how did this whole thing come together? Actually, they weren't calling it synthetic biology back when I decided to become a geneticist. I had to say maybe at age 11 or 12, I decided, yeah, genetics, that's it, that's for me. Um, and it was actually for this. I, I saw genetics, and I saw wow, people are understanding life at this level and they're engineering life at this level and they're doing these amazing things with it. So I just thought that was like impossibly exciting. That is just the best thing ever. So that's what I decided to do with my career. Um, and I went into college, studied genetics, loved it the entire way through, um, which is, you know, a, a real boon because a lot of people got into genetics thinking they'd like it. And uh, a lot of people left genetics with a degree, often with first class honors and everything and just didn't like it anymore and moved on. But I, I still had that great passion for genetics, and I still had that ambition that I would go on to, you know, get into genetic engineering at a high level, at a, you know, really get the exciting stuff done. Um, and I actually sort of almost, I don't know, uh, I, I segued into cancer research out of this um, oddly misguided idea that I should uh, do it because medical genetics was important. 
And because as right. a person with genetics experience, it would be the right thing to do to devote some time into medical genetics. And I say that was the wrong thing to do because you really should follow your passions. Um, and I kind of found myself getting into this, telling myself, all right, I'm going to get into this, learn all the skills that I need because you learn, you learn knowledge in university. But at least in Ireland, you don't learn the skills. You have to basically apprentice in a lab to know the skills. Um, and I said to myself, I'll learn all the skills. I'll get all the stuff that I need to do genetic engineering. And while I'm doing it, I'll help cancer research, uh, you know, move forward a bit. And then I'll go off and do synthetic biology. I think by now they were starting to use the term synthetic biology. Uh, at least in my, in my filter bubble, I started coming across the term. And, um, and how, how long ago was that? What year was that? Oh, um, I graduated in 2007. Uh, and I spent two and a half years maybe working at that PhD in cancer research before actually leaving it because I just, um, it was really depressing me. Uh, I, I kind of hit this point in it where I realized that academic science, the culture wasn't really for me. Um, I kind of always felt, I started feeling more like an engineer than a scientist. Uh, I understood the scientific method. I really appreciate having that knowledge. And I love the thrill of understanding something and learning something by deduction. But my mindset was always more about re-engineering something than coming to understand something. It's kind of the thing, you know, I love reading about it, don't like doing it. So um, eventually I had already gotten into DIY Bio at that point and I'd been doing a couple of projects along the side kind of uh, for fun. Um, And it gradually dawned on me that this was great fun. This was an emerging trend. Uh, This is a hobby that is growing and, you know, synthetic biology is becoming something that doesn't require the sponsorship of an academic lab or an industrial lab. So why am I seeking that? Why am I looking for a career where I'll ask someone else what I can do when I can just go home, set up a lab and do it myself? So I've done a few fun things at home, like isolating bioluminescent bacteria from local seafood. Um, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to quit this because it's making me depressed and uh, start a company where I'll try to create open source DNA for people. And I started out by designing my first piece of open, open source DNA, ordering it. And I spent a while uh, I spent an unfortunately long time getting a license for genetic modification in Ireland, but since then I've tested the thing and it works. So I'm, I, I'm very close to my open beta for first piece of open source DNA. So this is a much better career for me. I'm much more satisfied with it. I'm much happier in myself. And um, I kind of feel like there's a lot more potential in it. So that's, okay, that's the got, story of my career, I think. I got about 50,000 questions for you. So I'm just trying to figure out which direction I should go in here because you've touched on a lot of great stuff. So well, the first thing is, you said you started your own company. Um, could you maybe describe in a little more detail what that company is, what it's going to do, what, how, you're, how you're going to make revenue, what's, you know, what the whole plan is? Well, when you're dealing with DNA uh, or life to begin with, the minute that you try and put a patent on it, you're, just, you're kidding yourself. I mean, you're lying mm-hmm. to yourself. You're trying to pretend that you're giving away a product that can be inherently limited. And this is life. I mean, the, the, very, the very definition of life is that it replicates. Uh, that's how evolution happens in the first place. So if it's living, it, 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 it makes copies of itself. And trying to tell someone that they'll buy your product, but they can't let it replicate, or they can't give it away, or they can't share it, it's nonsense. So open source DNA always made sense to me. But it do- the reality of this, I mean, patents don't change this. Uh, they just allow you to lie to yourself and blame your customer. But the reality is that when you sell a product that replicates, you have to expect that there will be a, a, a fall off in sales that you'll sell a lot at first, and then as the market saturates, if, it, if it's going to, um, it becomes easier for new people who want this product to get it from their buddy than to order it from you. 
So my revenue model is actually just to release early and release often, uh, which is, I suppose, the open source philosophy, you know, is part of that. Um, so I want to release DNA that is properly open source, not just, you know, you can see the DNA, which is, again, by definition, DNA is, a, it's a non-compiled code base. Anyone can read it. But this isn't just visible source. This is open source. This is copy left. This is, you can have this, you can do anything you want with it as long as you give the same rights to someone else. Um, and the DNA will be yours to work with and play with and tinker with, engineer and sell onwards. Um, and at first, I just want to work on the platforms. I want to make DNA that is easy to engineer. I want to make DNA that codes for proteins, which are very expensive to get, to allow you to make them at home cheaply. Um, and I want to create, you know, maybe the kind of thing like an interpretation layer. But at a certain point when maybe I've uh, ticked as many of the necessary boxes as possible that allow people to start engineering DNA at home for fun, I might consider then branching into fun, profitable fun. Um, but things like, all right, um, there is code out there that allows you to make a cell smell like bananas. But it's kind of hard to get that code because it, it lives in an academic lab somewhere and those guys don't feel like sharing. So, okay, let's make an open source version just for laughs because I know that people will want it. And the, the cost of actually making DNA is dropping steadily. Um, and the value of DNA remains the same in that, you know, I, I will give you this piece of DNA, you pay shipping and you pay the value of actually having the thing. And uh, the market is growing. So as far as I'm concerned, by the point that I just start playing around and selling things for fun, and hopefully other people will be doing so at the same time, it'll just become like, um, you know, a, a nice standard hobby market. People will buy things because they want them and I'll sell them because I want to. And I get, I get to have the, a fun career. They get to have great open source products. So, in, in a sense, you would be kind of a bridge almost to the hobbyist world. Your ideal customers would be amateurs and maybe even, uh, I don't know, students as opposed to uh, you know, industrial labs and, uh, and academic institutions. Well, funny thing, actually, uh, when working to create open source platforms for amateurs who aren't going to have much instrumentation and will have limits on the kind of chemicals that they can use at home, um, you actually tick a lot of boxes that are... They, they're not worth enough to industry for them to re-engineer something that they already have. But mm -hmm. they are still worth something. So, for example, the platform that I have been working on is an open source plasmid, which is a circular piece of DNA which is used for getting your desired program into a bacteria. And the target bacteria is Bacillus subtilis. Um, now, Bacillus subtilis as a platform is really attractive to people in industry because it's very good at what we call secreting a protein. So you might make a protein... And you want to get that protein outside of the cell to make it easy to purify. Bacillus is really good at doing that. So people always like to try getting something to work in Bacillus, but they often find, oh, you know, the DNA is really unstable in Bacillus for some reason. Um, and this is a problem that the answer has been found to, but it's not worth enough to them to really bother re-engineering the wheel just to get this to work. Uh, likewise, often plasmids that are used in industry, including Bacillus subtilis plasmids, are highly unstable. So this is because they've taken wild DNA back in the 80s when they didn't really know what they were doing and they tried to minimize it. They tried, you know, like the guys who are making the minimal cell now, uh, they tried to chop away bits and see what's the minimum viable bit of DNA that still works. But to do that, they stuck antibiotic resistance genes onto the plasmid. So that's like holding a gun to the bacteria's head. They'd put a gene on the plasmid that was utterly essential to the bacteria's life and then they'd cut away other bits of the DNA while applying antibiotics to see what's the minimum piece of DNA that will still work. Um, but because they were using antibiotics to select for it, they inadvertently chopped out all of these essential bits that are actually really important. And while you're holding a gun to the bacteria's head, they will still use the, the plasmid because otherwise they'd be dead. But the minute you take away that gun, the plasmid disappears. The cells just, it, it, it's unstable. 
Right. And, and again, that's another thing that isn't worth enough to industry who can afford to keep buying antibiotics uh, to change. But me working from scratch, I was able to change that. I was able to do the research, find out why, where this problem came from, find out how to fix it and engineer it into my plasmid. So while I am targeting an amateur market, I actually feel that a lot of the things that we want and that, well, what we need are things that they still do want in, um, in industry. It is highly convenient to an industry guy to have a plasmid that is uh, engineered for a strain that's great at secreting proteins, is highly stable and doesn't need antibiotics. Those are great things. And those are things that aren't really serviced by existing plasmids, simply because it's not worth the effort to make it. But that doesn't mean they don't want it. You know, it's kind of this uh, uncanny valley between investment and payoff that I can well, do because my target audience need it, um, but they can't because they've got more important things to do. Well, you know, and it's exactly how open source has paid off huge for the commercial sector, right? I mean, at first it was students and, and hackers who wanted software for themselves didn't have to pay for it and have the money but then ultimately if you look at how much open source software is used throughout industry it's just you know probably mm. if you if you actually looked at you know program for program like what was paid for and what was ultimately free it's probably the majority is open source now i would bet well yeah, i you mean look. just look at the big the biggest growing platforms in the world are ios and android and uh, ios is based on mac os x which is a complete ripoff of linux i mean they stole one of the linux kernels from bsd which wasn't it wasn't copy left. So BSD uh, didn't have something in there saying you have to share the results of your hacking. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, that's MacOS. So MacOS is based on a very successful open source product, uh, although they kind of then de-open sourced it for themselves. And then you've got Android, which again is based on the Linux kernel and is an open source um, product. So the thing, like you're, like you're saying, you know, it was originally for people who either didn't have the money or had needs that industry didn't. So the cypherpunks... Uh, who kind of led to modern cryptography on computers that allows you to buy things online safely, that allows you to communicate securely if you're clever enough to use encrypted programs. Um, those guys just wanted free speech. Uh, they felt that, you know, it was unfair uh, that they were being spied on by their governments without warrants, without any reason, without, uh, without probable cause or suspicion. So they created software that allowed them to have their privacy and free speech. And industry didn't really care about privacy or free speech, but the same security paradigms allowed industry to create extremely secure models for things like finance and uh, allowed them to do things like selling things over the internet to their customers using credit cards that wouldn't have been safe to use otherwise. So that was uh, one person's need becomes another person's want, um, you know, right. just because it, it, it fills a niche that the market didn't know was there until it was filled. Um, so yeah, open source software did that and continues to do that and it's completely dominating the software market. And I feel that open source DNA will actually follow the same trend. Right. Now, I just one more follow-up question on your, um, on your startup. Uh, now, is this something that you're bootstrapping, or did you take any kind of investment? And um, if you didn't take investment, how, how, are you able, how are you able to get customers and, and revenue? I mean, just give, us a, just give us a quick overview of what the, you know, what the financial situation is. Well, I was careful at first to insist to myself that I wasn't accepting funding for my first project at any rate, because I wanted to prove to people, a, a lot of people have this fantasy that DIY bio is a flash in the pan and that it doesn't represent anything. I mean, the best one ever was uh, this synthetic, a modern synthetic biologist. He's uh, top of his game. He's really influential in the field. And he wrote this big blog rant on his web, on his company blog, a complete rant about DIY bio, about how, uh, you know, all they're playing with is, you know, restriction enzymes and protein sequences. And we had all that stuff in the 80s and we didn't do what they're play, claiming to do. And never mind the short-sightedness of saying that because I couldn't do it in the 80s, you can't do it now. Um, 
there was a very personal element and undertone to this where I think he felt kind of threatened. And some people actually do feel threatened by the suggestion that someone without a degree could do a job at home that these guys consider their defining job, their defining characteristic. And I wanted, when I was starting up my company, to say, no, look, I'm going to do this as a person at home without any support from academia, industry, or kind of capital investment or anything like this. And I'm going to make it happen and show them that, yes, you can. Because if I want to make a company that is based on supplying this, uh, this growing amateur market, I want to show that amateur market and I want to show all the spectators that actually this is totally possible. So get off your high horse and work with it. Um, and that's what I did. I mean, I know that my plasmid works. I'm just narrowing down uh, the precise uh, environment in which it does work before I can release my beta. Um, after that, though, I, I, am, I am accepting a form of funding. And I'm, I'm not going to kind of go into the details yet because I'm, I'm not uh, kind of ready to reveal um, exactly what the, the situation is. But uh, yeah, I, I am now accepting funding more because I need, to pay, I need to have a salary now for my family life rather than sure. because I actually require it. If you do the math on paper, yeah, you order your DNA for a certain price, and it is a hefty prototyping price. But DNA is actually a very nice thing after that. It's really easy to make more DNA. It's really easy to grow up uh, your genetically modified bacteria, harvest DNA from them, and then sell the DNA at a reasonable, a not unreasonable markup. So it is a very good platform, I feel, for someone who doesn't have dependents to just say, I'm going to hack on DNA and then sell it without any investment. That's totally possible. The only reason I'm accepting investment now and uh, using it to fund my company is because I do want to grow this company very quickly and because uh, I don't want to have the pressure of immediately generating a big enough income to live off because I've got a family to help support. Yeah, so that, this changes, is my specific that, changes, yeah. that changes the situation a little bit. It does um, help that the person, you know, the people that I'm going into business with are very experienced uh, in the field of, you know, actually setting up and running a company. And that's something that I, I'm going to get better at, but... I am a novice at this. So a, a significant uh, motivator for me was also, of course, if you're going into business, it helps to have people on board who already have a head for business. So it didn't have much to do with the difficulty in engineering DNA at all. Uh, in fact, you know, if I, were, if I were on my own and had loads of time in the world and didn't have any worries about money and uh, wasn't concerned about growing the business as quickly as I am, um, I'd have probably just decided to continue hacking in the basement and sell DNA to my customers directly. Um, my no. concern would be that as you create platforms, people will pull a Mac on it and steal your idea and come up with all the next obvious steps and patent them or trademark them or, you know, ruin, ruin, the, ruin the fun. So I kind right. of feel like, you know, if we're going to start this off, do it right. Just get going, build these things quickly, get them out there and uh, cut the legs off anyone who wants to wreck the fun. Have you heard of um, the Synbio startup launchpad? I think it has something to do with the singularity. It's the Singularity uh, University, they just started? I, I do, yeah. Uh, it's a kind of an ambitious, um, it's an ambitious, uh, what, what do they call it, kind of venture capital program where you come up with a good idea for synthetic biology and they'll offer to, you know, invest in your program. So um, I thought that looked really cool. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they, they compared it to like the, y, they call it the Y Combinator of synthetic biology, essentially the same kind of a thing. And had you looked into it for your own venture or is this, or had you started on this, path of raising capital before the, the Synbio startup launchpad was, you know, You know, I, I have to say, I didn't actually go looking for it as such. Um, I happened to just meet someone that I had uh, a, lot of, a lot in common with, I think, um, had a good perspective with, and didn't have to kind of convince about things like open source. Um, and we just sort of 
hit it off. And so that's kind of where this uh, arrangement that I am kind of going into came from. When it came to the synthetic biology startup program, I was talking to the guys about like, what are the requirements here? Like, do you have to move to San Francisco? And they were saying, look, basically, yeah, you do. I mean, you have to come over here and take part in the Singularity University and all that. And I don't have any desire to live in America and I've got a family in Ireland. So that was basically it for me. I said, look, you know, I don't desperately need funding and I have no intention of moving to America. So that's it. Uh, but right, it does right. look like a really great deal for people who do want to or are happy to move to San Francisco. Right, right. So I, w- I wanted to ask you a little bit more about sort of getting started in this field. I mean, I- I've been looking around on the web a lot for tutorials and 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 uh, instructions on on how to get started and what to do. And it's really early days. It seems like like I've you know there's this. 80-page primer that was written by one of these labs that I'm reading, which is pretty good. I mean, I forgot most of my biology and chemistry that I took in high school and college. So now it's just sort of refreshing all of that stuff. And um, and then you see, like, uh, there'll be little YouTube videos. I think you, ha- you had one or two. It's like, hey, look, I'm going to do this thing with some really, you know, simple equipment. But there's no, like... You know, what you really like is like a book or like learn synthetic biology the hard way or something, you know, or, uh, you know, it should be like, you know, your hello world stuff. Okay, here's the, here's, here, here are the you know, the basic tools you're going to need. Here's what we're going to do. Um, here's the basic background. Project one, do it. Step, 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 do it next. I mean, is there anything well, uh, like that available? Unfortunately, not so much yet. There, I mean, there isn't exactly a book uh, that, that t- runs you through these things, but a lot of people will join the Digawa Bio Group and get basically instructed step by step through that sort of thing. So we've had a few really, I, I find this really exciting that you get this, there was this cool guy from uh, Austria just came onto the list and he's, he's really energetic. He's really excited about all this. And he epitomizes DOI Bio because he didn't at any rate have any academic background when he started. I think he has since alluded to going into college and he is now maybe under, an undergrad, but at least starting out, I, I don't think he had any academic background and he, he was just like, yeah, I want to make GMOs. Uh, how do I do it? Uh, and people talked him through it and they told him, look, you know, you should know that at this point it's not going to be easy. Uh, there's going to be a lot of startup kind of investment involved in that, not startup, not in that sense. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you need to buy and get ready first. And uh, there are going to be a couple of foundational skills before you get to do the really exciting stuff that you want to do. Um, like many people who wanted to kind of do something really ambitious starting out, like um, make, bio- I think he wants to make a bioluminescent plant, which is really cool, but very, very non-trivial, very difficult. Um, so he actually went off and said, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll start with the small stuff. So he got all the equipment he needed. He, because he's in Europe, he had to work under a GMO license. So he found a, a friendly academic lab who'd let him work on their bench and he ordered some DNA and made his first GMO bacteria. Um, so he decided to go and bootstrap himself. He got some instruction on the list and he went off and did it. Is there a book that you can follow? Unfortunately, not, not yet. And that's something that in between everything else I'm doing, I'd like to kind of draw up a lot of tutorials that help people to just get started. Um, And that is the best way to learn. I mean, you can read 80 page introductions all you like, but these things just fall out of your head unless you've got a practical grounding, unless you actually do them. so exactly, yeah, you need it's, skill, but you need skills, not just knowledge. Like I, you know, it's, it's like you can't learn you can't learn math by reading a math book. You can't learn to program by reading a programming book. You actually have to build something. And I think synthetic biology is exactly that thing. It seems like there's a lot of skills. Well, I mean, it, it's even more than that because I mean, in in school they teach you math by making you do sums, but that's an awful way to learn. Most people forget the advanced stuff because 
it doesn't have a grounding in practicality or interest. It's just, oh yeah, you do the sums and you get the answer and then you leave and go home and play video games. Um, it needs to be more than that. You need to show people a, an applied and practical example. So uh, it's not enough. This is why the hello world of biology is GFP. It would be really easy to just show people how to genetically engineer bacteria using antibiotic resistance and say, all right, here are some bacteria without the plasmid. We're going to give the plasmid to some of them and not to the others. And then we're going to give antibiotics to both. And you'll see that the guys with the plasmid survive the antibiotics. And then you do. But like, it's boring. It's just, I mean, yeah, sure. Look, they survived. That's great. And you know, academically on some level that there is some new DNA in there doing the job, but it's easy to forget how you did it because it's not exciting. So GFP is more interesting. You see, look, they glow in the dark. They're like fluorescent. You hold a UV lamp up and they glow green. And you go, cool. Now that, that is cool. Um, that yeah, well, makes that, me think about that's, what I can do with this technology. I mean, that's what's so great about programming and computers that you get feedback. You build something, you write some code, and it does something. It gives you feedback, and that makes you want to go to the next generation. Okay, now I'm going to build something bigger. And it sounds like synthetic biology could have the same kind of positive feedback loop. Well, it does. Unfortunately, though, you do find... Now, I, I, do, I program in Python a lot, and uh, even I find, despite my passion for genetics, that it is very tempting sometimes to just go off and do uh, an unrelated code project because with code, you get that feedback loop really quickly. You get to design, iterate, test, design, iterate, test, uh, like within minutes again and again and again and again to fix problems, create new features, delete, delete issues, make new things. It's so fast uh, to get feedback on what you've done. One of the challenges that biology has that is, I don't see this disappearing at all, <laughs> if, if not in the very long term, um, if at all, you know, the, the iteration cycle is at least a day because you're talking about engineering bacteria with a new piece of DNA and then you have to grow them. You have to let them grow overnight until you can actually see the results. So, I mean, that, that's an eight-hour iteration cycle at least, assuming you could magically make DNA instantly. You're still talking about eight hours be between design and test. So, well, that actually seems like that could work out pretty well for like somebody who's learning it on the side, right? Like you do your little experiment you know, after dinner one night and then you, know, you go to work the next day and, and then, all right, I'm going to go and take a look at you know, the, how everything evolved and do the next step. Yeah, I mean, depending on your schedule and how you go about, how you go about your day, it could be really convenient. Um, but it does mean that if there's a problem, you, you, know, you come back the next day and there are no bacteria surviving for whatever reason. And now you have to figure out why. And trying to find that answer is a trial and error process where every question takes a day. So it can be very hard to debug these things. But I think the desktop sequencing and desktop synthesis of DNA when it arrives will make this like a lot easier, a lot more trivial to work with. But for now, at least, there's a, there a, a longer iteration cycle. It's not killer, but it is there. It, it's an issue. So I guess what I'd, I'd really like to ask you about now is if you could maybe walk us through what are the basic... Uh, things that we would need to get started. So if there are anyone who's listening to the show and uh, who's interested, and I'm one of those people <laughs> who's interested, cool. What, cool. what are the equipment, the base equipment that I would need in, in, to, to do anything interesting? And what are the sort of the basic, I don't know, steps or, or, or things that you do to, say, to manipulate, I say, a bacteria? Okay, so assuming that we're talking about DIY synthetic biology. Um, yes, yes, exactly. You, you would need, uh, firstly, you need the bacteria and you need the DNA. And they actually prove to be the most difficult things to get at the moment because uh, 
in in some places it may be um, very difficult to get an academic lab to share these things with you, even though in most parts of the world there's no law against it. Now in Europe there are often laws against making GMOs, but that actually doesn't cover sharing bacteria and DNA separately. It's only when you put them together that you need a license. Um, is, is, that, America, is that true? Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Go on. Sorry, well, in, in America, that, that's not quite the same. Uh, the, the law is kind of, at the same time, more permissive, but a lot less consistent in America. So you can do a lot of stuff in America without asking anyone. It's totally legal. But there are some things that you might do uh, that could, if they're misinterpreted, suddenly be illegal, depending on which agency is, is, is asking. Um, but okay. by and large, it's really not an issue in America, unless you're doing something silly or risky. Um, so it, it's a lot easier to get involved in America, but still hard to get the DNA. So we'll say you get uh, a bacteria, we'll say E. coli. You can just use any E. coli. You need a lab strain and you can get lab strains from other people on the list. You can get them from a friendly academic lab. You might be able to order them from a supplier, but you need a lab strain, which is a strain that's been uh, grown in the lab for decades. It's fairly, uh, it's evolved for the Petri dish. So it's no longer a threat. It's considered biosafety level one, whereas wild E. coli is often considered biosafety level two, which is illegal to work with at home in many places without a license. So lab strain of E. coli or bacillus or some other species is pretty important. Uh, also because lab strains tend to be really easy to engineer in contrast to wild bacteria, which have all of these uh, defense systems against DNA that they don't want because usually in the wild, that means a virus. So lab strains, totally essential. Um, you need to have the DNA you want. Now we'll say you, you may be starting out just by trying your hello world. So you might want a piece of DNA that has GFP designed so that it will work with your target bacteria. So E. coli and a plasmid containing the gene for green fluorescent protein. If you're using a traditional plasmid that needs antibiotics, you also need antibiotics. So that's sometimes very difficult to get um, because it may be illegal to have antibiotics without a prescription in many places, or very, at the very least, very difficult to get antibiotics. And this is a common stumbling block. And again, one of the things that I was trying to, uh, to solve with my plasmid. Um, now, once you've got those critical elements, um, the ingredients to grow bacteria, I mean, leave anything alone in a kitchen long enough and bacteria grow in it. So you can actually grow bacteria at home very easily. You, uh, at the very least, you could use recycled jars instead of petri dishes. Uh, you can get agar in a food store. You can make the media that bacteria grow on out of stuff you buy in the supermarket. So that, that's quite easy. Um, the equipment that you might need to actually engineer bacteria is trivial. I, I actually did write up a protocol on this, and I can't remember, did I post it to my blog yet? But I'll, I'll put it up soon if I didn't. Uh, we'll say you have the DNA and you have E. coli and you've got jam jars or petri dishes of media for them to grow on. Um, to actually get DNA into E. coli can be as simple as adding a type of laxative and uh, Epsom, well, we call it Epsom salt, but it's, it's called magnesium sulfate. You get that in a pharmacy. Um, adding a certain amount of that to some broth, putting the bacteria into it on ice, leaving them for a while, adding the DNA, and then that's it. So then you just need to you know, add some antibiotics if that's what you're doing, and you've got your first GMO. So actually, you don't even need any special equipment if you, if you have the DNA already on hand. Um, if you don't already have the DNA on hand, we'll say you want to hack DNA. Now you need maybe a PCR machine. You could get away without it, but really, probably you do. Now, a PCR machine is a simple enough idea. It's a machine that cycles through temperatures really accurately, and that allows you to use DNA and proteins that modify DNA uh, so as to cut DNA, paste it, copy it, um, you know, you can do a lot of things with a PCR machine and the right enzymes. So you need to get the PCR machine, you go to openpcr.org and you buy an open PCR. You could get some old secondhand thing, 
but I recommend going for the built for DIY bio by DIY bio machine, open PCR. It is worlds better than a secondhand one on eBay. Uh, and it's well, 500 dollars. Yeah, right. It's like 500 bucks, right? So that's not it. Sorry, 599 actually. They, uh, I think they, they raised the margin after their Kickstarter because they kind of needed to pay, for, pay. They, they needed more for themselves, I think, uh, which sure. is totally fair given what they're producing. It is officially a tenth the price of the industry equivalent. And it is a 10 times better than what you get for five grand from an industry wow. supplier. They'll give wow. you some awful thing that will break in a year. They will absolutely refuse to maintain it for you if you buy an, an, an industrial one. It will be built to be impossible to fix because they make more money by selling you them repeatedly. And uh, it will have a, ho- a horrible touch button interface, which breaks all the time. The OpenPCR plugs into your computer, comes with uh, one of two friendly interfaces, either the one that they built using Adobe Air or the one that I'm working on, which uses Python. Um, it is open source. You build it yourself. If it breaks, you fix it yourself. And it is actually very straightforward. It is mostly computer parts and laser cut case. Um, yeah. So it is yeah, a much I, better... When I looked at online, it's, it's, I think they estimated like a three to four hours, but together it was like buying some furniture from Ikea is what it kind of reminded yeah. in terms of Basically, difficult. yeah. I mean, most of what goes into the thing actually is the, uh, the cooler, which is actually a, CP, a, a very deluxe CPU cooler. So when you actually open up a, an open PCR, the two biggest things inside are a computer power supply and a, a computer CPU cooler. The rest of it is all little bits that you just kind of stick together and bolt together and then seal up the case and plug it into your computer. It even co- it comes pre-programmed and everything, so there's an Arduino at the heart of the thing, a lovely open source uh, microcontroller, um, and you just put the thing together and seal it up, plug it into your computer, boot up their program, and that's your, that's your PCR machine, sorted. Um, what you'd need after that is enzymes that you can get from a supplier. Uh, enzymes are easier to get than bacteria. You, you go to uh, a smaller supplier, they're usually happy to send enzymes to a home address, no problem. And if you want to copy DNA, you need what's called a polymerase. If you want to cut DNA, you need what's called a restriction enzyme. If you want to paste DNA together, you could do that with polymerases using PCR, or you could use this other thing called ligase, which ligates DNA. So when you're editing DNA, you use molecular machines to do the job, enzymes. And you use a big machine called a PCR machine to control the little molecular machines, the enzymes. So when you're editing DNA in person, you do that. Say you don't want to invest in that. You're willing to fork up a bit of money up front and just get the job done. You pull out your trusty laptop. You copy-paste a lot of DNA together. You maybe edit some of the DNA using free online tools. And you paste together a bit of DNA that, like a program, says what to do in your target species. You send it away to a synthesis company, pay them about 30 cents per base pair, and they'll send it to you in the post. And then you just go back to step one that I mentioned earlier. Laxatives, Epsom salt, bacteria, job done. So... You could go down the really DIY route and hack your own DNA using open source tools and easily accessible enzymes. It is going to be difficult. Um, Or you could do the modern thing, synthetic biology, and order the DNA over the internet. But it's expensive right now. So those are your two options. Um, So if you want to extract DNA, then you're talking about maybe you need a centrifuge. And that's where uh, my, my little invention comes in, which is... Uh, yeah, you know, that was really cool. I want to hear about that, the Dremel fuse. Tell, <laughs> tell us about that. That, was, that one was a very fun project for me because uh, I, this is still when I was just doing DIY bio for fun, not as a, not as a career. And um, I was at home. I wanted to isolate these bioluminescent bacteria. And leading up to that project, I was like, mm, I'm going to need a centrifuge. So you use these things in the lab for separating cells from a sample. So you've got these cells floating around in a watery sample. They're all swimming around. How do you get the cells and remove the water to put them into something else? Um, to do that, you spin them really, really fast and the bacteria sink. They won't sink normally because they're swimming around. They, they're able to swim. So 
to get them to sync, you need to spin them really fast. Think rock on the end of a string, um, but much, much, much faster. So a centrifuge is uh, a glorified motor with a rotor attached where you put your samples. And again, like a PCR machine, they're extremely expensive for what they do. Uh, I think you can hear my daughter in the background yeah, enthusiastic, yeah, no, no, no enthusiastically no problem, yelping. No. Um, yeah. uh, centrifuges are vastly overpriced for what they do. And I had a 3D, I still have a 3D printer, a MakerBot. And at the time I said, this is ridiculous. I've got a Dremel, I've got a, a 3D printer. So I spent a bit of time and a lot of love designing a rotor that would take standard tubes, the kind that you normally use in a lab, strap it onto a Dremel and spin the thing and you just get your, there's your centrifuge. So it works perfectly. Uh, it, it is, I, I would say that because it doesn't have a case surrounding the samples, it is more prone to misuse than a normal centrifuge. And uh, I totally make it clear to people that it is up to them to accept the risk that if they misload the thing or if it just fails naturally, they could end up with a tube flying across the room at high velocity. So it is a hazard that you have to accept if you're an amateur and you just want to hack. And it's right. totally not my responsibility. Beyond that, <laughs> right. I use that thing in my own lab and it works it's always worked perfectly for me. Um, and that's another piece of equipment which you can make your own because it's open source. Uh, if you have access to a 3D printer, you can print one out for maybe a euro um, or you can order them on Shapeways and, you know, kindly afford me something of a markup to go towards hacking new things. And, um, you know, it'll come in the post about a month later and you've got your own centrifuge with How a Dremel, that of course. The Dremel Fuge, it actually depends on where you come from because Shapeways dynamically price it according to shipping. But, <clears throat> pardon me, but where I am, I see it uh, oscillating around $45 or $50, depending on where I order from. Um, and, and might be Dremel, cheaper in America. Yeah, and a Dremel is like 30, 40 bucks, right? I mean, you could probably order one off Amazon for, for that Absolutely. amount, Absolutely, right? and to be honest, if you're, if you're a hacker, you've probably got one in your garage anyway. So they're, they're very common pieces of equipment. And there okay, is so actually a version of the Dremel Fuge which comes with a plastic chuck built in. And I don't recommend it. I do recommend get a Dremel, use the Dremel. But if someone really doesn't want to buy a Dremel, they can buy an alternative version with a built-in chuck which will fit into any power tool, like a drill. But drills generally don't go as fast as a Dremel by a long shot. And it's, it's not a linear thing. It's not like if you go one-tenth the speed, you get one-tenth the force. Way no. No, no, no. Uh, so it, it, it's, you're better off going with a Dremel, which has low torque but high speed. But if you really, really want to, you know, just use what you have, you can buy a chuck one and use it with a drill. So yeah, that's I think what allows you think... other microbiology-related tasks, like uh, separating cells, manipulating cells, and extracting DNA from cells often requires a centrifuge, usually requires a centrifuge. So once you've got your DNA into the cell, maybe you want to take it back out to edit it further. Uh, certainly, in order, to make, in order to get new DNA, you're going to run out of your initial stock very quickly. But you can make more practically for free just by growing the bacteria that it's in and you know, murdering them and taking the, back, the DNA from them. But to do that, you need a centrifuge. So PCR machine allows you to edit DNA, but to make more DNA... Uh, it's, it's more practical to use the cells themselves and a centrifuge. So those are the two pieces of equipment I'd recommend. There are alternatives to a, a Dremelfuge, which are a lot safer. Um, so, you know, might be worth considering those. Uh, but the P open PCR, I, I, I would recommend against buying anything but an open PCR at the moment. It's definitely the best, open, the best PCR machine for an amateur. Right. And, 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 and so are there, is there any of the other equipment outside of the, the, the centrifuge and PCR machine that we need Bunsen, to, to do this kind of stuff? Bunsen burner is probably the best thing you can buy. Um, and you can, get, okay. uh, you can get Bunsen burners from good brew shops, like brewing suppliers, that will clip onto a gas cartridge you can buy in a camping shop nearby. 
And a Bunsen burner gives you a local area of sterility. When the, when the blue flame is burning high, within about a, maybe, maybe a foot, but more likely, you know, seven or eight inches of the flame, things are fairly sterile. And that allows you to make sure that your cells don't get contaminated. Um, I would strongly recommend getting good glassware like petri dishes and test tubes, glass petri dishes, glass test tubes, and a pressure cooker to sterilize everything. Um, but you can get away with using, you know, recycled jars, but it is totally worth investing in good glassware. So you get some petri dishes, some test tubes, a good pressure cooker to sterilize your media and to sterilize your glass, a Bunsen burner, a centrifuge, and a PCR machine, and you're pretty well set up. Beyond that, you just need the DNA and the bacteria, and you're already biohacking. There you go. You don't need a microscope or anything like that? You're not going to be able to see bacteria under a microscope anyway. So that's why I say, you know, wait for tomorrow when they're growing on a Petri dish and you can see colonies. I have never seen bacteria. Uh, I've never looked down <laughs> a microscope good enough to... I, I have, you know, while I was being trained, we looked down good, good microscopes that allowed us to see them. But in my lab, I'm just incapable of seeing bacteria, and that's okay. It's got nothing to do with my workflow. Right, right. I and see what the about colonies this? of bacteria, and that's fine. <laughs> now, what about the software? I, I've seen a few, like, there's like, uh, was it GenoCAD and Tinkercell? I mean, is there any software that you would recommend that allows you to, I don't know, design the DNA? Um, the software that I use, uh, I mean, you're talking to me, you're talking to a guy who likes to work at the, the kernel level, you know, so I, I like looking at the DNA itself. And, uh, the, D, the software I use is Gene Designer. Uh, I'll actually, I think I have an URL for that here in front of me. Yeah. Um, maybe, perhaps, no. So hang on, I'll open this now. Gene Designer. And I'll see if something comes up for it. Because uh, okay. I always forget the URL for this. But Gene Designer is a, a, a web suite online that um, I can't find right now. That's okay. We'll just put it in. The, we'll put it in the show notes. Maybe if you could, uh, we'll, it might be we'll gene design rather than gene designer. But suffice to say, there's this lovely uh, toolkit which just makes it easy to um, take a piece of DNA and change the bias, like change the dialect of DNA from one species to another. Now it's not perfect. Okay. There are a lot of flaws in the way that it works because it's a bit outdated. Um, but I use that to edit my DNA from species to species for the most part, and to remove bits of DNA that I really don't want without changing the actual what it codes for. Um, so I like to use gene design, the gene design suite. Um, and the other thing that I actually use is, uh, oh, it, it, what's this piece of software called now? Um, there's a piece of software that I use on Linux. And uh, if I could only remember what the stuff is called, because it's not installed on my laptop. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's going to come to me now the minute that we hang up. That's um, okay. Well, well uh, I'll, I'll try and get all these links from you after the show. There, there is actually one I can remember called APE, which is uh, APE for Aplasmid Editor. Is an, it's outdated again. The guy no longer supports it, and he never supported it for Linux, which is a real pity because, uh, seriously, come on, it's 2012 Linux, man. Um, right. But it's, it, for, for Mac and Windows, it does work. It's outdated. It's a bit, un, bit unstable, but it's a very good, very simple, but very good way of handling DNA. Uh, so APE for Aplasmid Editor is uh, a half-decent one to work with. Um, and the other one that I can't remember is far better, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, okay. And if I, yeah, I'm drawing a complete blank here, I'm afraid. It, but people on the DOI bio list have actually been talking about software lately. So either you'll find that, uh, either I'll find it now when, when Thunderbird turns on, or you'll find it after this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll put all this stuff in the show notes, so it's, it's, it's no big deal. We'll, we'll find it. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the e um, ex, um 
effort. Do you, did you do you know much about that? The was like a group. I, I think I undergrad. It, yeah, it's a very popular kind of art uh, speculation project where they're talking about the way you could use synthetic biology in person. Um, I'm afraid I'm out of time. Uh, dinner is oh. sort of waiting for me in the other room, so I should really uh, go in. But it, I would it. say that of the eChromi project, those guys are. It, it is one of the iGEM projects which has gone on the longest because most of these projects, they do them, they do something amazing, they submit the parts, they go to the jamboree, and then they go on and graduate and do their own thing. The Chromi guys just keep touring and showing people this great idea and people keep going, oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> they, they really get people interested in this. Um, and the idea is that, you know, what if you had strains of E. coli that live in your colon and they are able to detect from the relationship between your colon and your blood they can detect problems, they can detect deficiencies, they can detect diseases, they could warn you of routine things. Like if you're a woman, they could warn you like, okay, you're ovulating, things like this, that are just things that as a lifestyle change, it's really helpful to know these things. If you're a guy, they could tell you, you know, uh, whether you're, well, there aren't that many cycles that men need to look out for, but just common health things like your cholesterol's up. Maybe you should go to the doctor. Um, your antibodies for the common cold have reappeared. You've probably been exposed to the cold lately. This, this kind of thing. And it's just such a fantastic idea. But they also call, they're also kind of looking at the body horror kind of uh, end of things because they deliberately, I think, chose um, a platform that requires you to turn around and look in the loo and see right, what kind yeah. of cure it is down there. And that, I think that was a deliberate design thing because they were getting people to think life is exciting. Life is amazing. This platform is far more... Uh, deeply rooted in our daily lives than technology will ever be. But it's also often very icky and squishy. And yeah. to, you'll have to accept the ickiness and squishiness if you really want to get the best out of biology. Can, can I ask you one last question real quick? Yeah, before by all this, okay, uh, this one This is just a crazy idea I, I've had and talked about on the show, and I just want to hear your, your response to it. Um, so I have this sort of fantasy that you would be able to engineer sea algae to metabolize plastic. You know, they've discovered a couple different microorganisms that can metabolize plastic. And you have these, you know, this giant Pacific garbage patch floating out there the size of the continental U.S. that's all plastic. Yep. And I'm wondering, do you think it would be possible to move some of those, uh, those genes from those microorganisms into some kind of sea algae that could essentially uh, eat, consume all of that plastic out in the Pacific Ocean. Is that something that's even remotely possible or is that science fiction? Um, that's not science fiction at all. Uh, there are actually a lot of um, there are a lot of fungi out there, for example, that have these very well-tailored uh, systems for digesting long-chain hydrocarbons like we use in our plastics and in fuel and diesel. In fact, when, the, um, when that huge oil spill hit uh, from uh, BP, thanks for that BP. But when the, when they managed right. to completely cock up a, an oil rig and uh, spill oil into the ocean, they made a big deal about how great they were cleaning it up and how they were really dealing with this problem as quickly as possible. And don't worry, we're on top of it and everything. In reality, you st spill that much oil into the ocean, you'll murder all the birds. And of course, that happened. They weren't able to prevent that happening. They they pretended they did, but they didn't. It was a huge ecological disaster. But these oil problems are very immediate. They, the oil doesn't stay there beyond a few, you know, at, at most a year, because there are bacteria living in the ocean that will just devour it so quickly. Um, oh. And their response to it was actually to go out into the ocean and spray these bacteria into the ocean just to hurry it up. Um, right. When it comes to plastic, yeah, you know, plastics don't, they're not always natural. The guys that eat them may not occur in the environment where they end up, things like this. But yeah, there's huge scope for making, a. they call this bioremediation, for designing a, a species that can 
digest something that we've released into the environment wrongly and re- remove it. So um, there well, that, is scope for that, absolutely. That's great news. That's the inspiration for my interest in this subject. I, I was, always thought, that's what I want to work on. <laughs> that, good math. That's the yeah, problem I'd choice. like to solve. <laughs> so, Ooh. well, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to take up any more time. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that you, you went over time with us and, and shared so much of your, uh, your expertise on the subject. It's been great talking to you, and I oh, really, I, I, again, appreciate you. I love talking you about it. Usually you'd have to shut me up, but, uh, you know, <laughs> dinner calls and I'm starving, and it's a, it's a freezing day in Cork, and I've got a pie waiting for me, which is no problem. Well, quite kind indulgence for a day like this. Well, thank your wife for, uh, for uh, humoring us and allowing you to stay on with a little <laughs> longer. Would. And uh, thanks again for coming on. It's been great. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. Yeah. All Good right. Luck. That's a wrap. We're out. Bye.